um, we're going to spend some time studying the Bible together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus, everyone's favorite book of the Bible. It's the third book. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the third book in our Old Testament. And we're continuing a series. We just started last week by looking at Jesus's viewpoint on Sabbath and feasting and fasting. And we're now going to transition into the Old Testament and be in the Old Testament for a few weeks. But what we'll do is we'll bounce from Old Testament to New Testament. So don't worry, we'll cover some New Testament verses as well. This series we're calling Fasting and Feasting. So we mentioned the Lent prayer guide. It's in the back, in the basket. We encourage you to grab this. It's called the Resurrection Prayer Guide. And so just for clarity, we're actually a Protestant church. We're, we're not Roman Catholic Um, And so we don't agree with everything that the Catholic Church would teach on Lent and the seasons. But we recognize that this is a universal season throughout Christian history and the Christian world, the season before Easter. And so we want to kind of reclaim this time and say, how can we as a church be praying scriptural prayers together, unified together? So grab this guide. They're just little two-minute prayers for every day of the next season leading up to Lent. Starts on uh, Thursday. And so you can grab this guy. It's got little prayers. We want to encourage you to pray together so we can be a unified church praying these prayers together. Uh, According to the the beauty of Acts chapter 4 that said the early church was unified and the Spirit was uh, empowering them as they all prayed in the same direction. Grab that. It's also got some particular directions on fasting. So fasting is an ancient art that a lot of Christians are unaware of. Last week I said that a lot of fasting in our life is accidental It's just that kind of groaning and longing and going without that we feel in life and presenting that to Jesus. And so what we want to do is kind of take that idea and and form a discipline out of saying, okay, what are some of the things that you stuff that emptiness with, right? Like we all live in this broken world where we feel lonely and hungry and broken. And often we just kind of cover over that with Netflix and snacks and coffee and things like that. So gospel-centered fasting is an opportunity to just temporarily say, you know what, maybe I'll go without coffee for 40 days. Uh, Maybe I'll go without Netflix for 40 days. Maybe I'll go without a a meal once a day or or try something to break the normal rhythm of how I just kind of try to make the pain go away. And I can focus during that season on Jesus and my need of him. We've got some instructions in here. It tells you how to do that uh, and to do that in a way that's gospel-centered. Again, it's not you're not beating yourself up. You're not trying to like impress God with your suffering. That's not what fasting is about. It's taking that normal ache that you feel and directing it towards Jesus. Um, In this season, we also want to focus on the biblical feasts. In the traditional kind of Lenten practice, there's fasting during the week, and then there's feasting and celebrating on Sunday as God's people gather around the good news of God's grace. And so as we do that in our normal rhythm of gathering together with God's people on Sundays, we thought, you know what, why don't we look back at the biblical feasts and see the richness of what we have in our Old Testament that all points forward to Jesus. And so we're going to be in Leviticus that outlines the biblical feasts. This week, we're calling it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we'll be in Leviticus chapter 23. Um, How many of you have actually heard that term before, the Feast of Unleavened Bread? A few of you. Okay. So this is the first feast of the year. It's connected with Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Basically what it means is it's bread that doesn't have leaven, like yeast or baking soda, things that make it rise. There's no leavening agent in it. So it's a simpler bread. 
Um, I think most people can connect with this, but when you're doing specific tasks, sometimes the difficult tasks, uh, a difficult task, you might eat differently. Anybody do that? Like if you're about to run a race, you would eat differently than if it was Christmas night, right? Like it's a different way that we eat when we have something difficult ahead of us. Uh, My wife and I hiked the Grand Canyon last year, and so we packed hiking food, you know, like you have like trail mix and granola bars. My favorite are RX bars, but you know, these different simpler foods, that's really what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about. There's the simplification, there is a rigor, and you're saying, I'm going on this long journey. That's a part of what is being symbolized here in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the uh, focus on simple on-the-go sorts of foods. That's what unleavened bread was. It was faster to make. It was simpler. Um, It also symbolized purity. Um, So there's this idea that leaven itself is kind of like a symbol of the sin that puffs up and complicates our lives. So it was like, okay, we're going to simplify our life, and we're going to pack and get ready to go on this long journey that God is taking us on. So we've got Two big symbols with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I would summarize it this way. The symbol of purity and the symbol of hiking, okay? They're about to go on a journey, hiking, journeying. All right, let's read the text. It's Leviticus 23. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we've got black Bibles. It's page 101. Page 101 in the black Bibles under the chairs there. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 4. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, or we would say gatherings, the holy gatherings, right? The holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And then on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation or gathering. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So the big idea is a special festival. It's connected to Passover. Passover is kind of the first and most important feast of the year connected to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Just as an aside, um, some scholars would say they're two feasts. Some say they're one feast. It, it doesn't really matter that much. They, they go together. We'll study that more as we unpack it. But this Feast of Unleavened Bread is a feast of simple journey food, simple hiking food, unleavened bread for a long journey. They're remembering their purity and they're remembering the journey that God took them on as he rescued them in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, the book right before Leviticus. I'm going to pray that God would meet with us so that he would help us by his spirit to see that Jesus is what all this is pointing to. So let me pray for us. God, we ask that you would meet with us by your spirit and help us to see and wonder at the depth of your word. You are a good God and you are always saving a people for yourself. You're always calling us to a journey of walking with you. And we pray that you would help us to see how both the Old and New Testaments hang together because you are the same rescuing God that loves us in Jesus Christ. So fill us with your spirit. Lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so fasting and feasting. 
We're starting with this first feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the Feast of hiking food is what I would describe it as. It's the feast of this simple journey food that symbolizes purity, but also symbolizes the seriousness of like, we're going on a journey. We're doing, we're doing a hard thing here. And so as we study this, I want to take us back uh, through where the party started in the Old Testament. And then I want us to look at how the party expands with Jesus. And then finally, how the party continues. So simple outline. We'll start in the Old Testament. We'll kind of move into the New Testament. How the party started then how the party expanded, and then how the party continues on into today. And so number one, I want us to see how the party started. And it started back in Exodus. That's where God rescued his people and then said, hey, have this once a year festival to remember my rescue of you. So let's go back a few pages in your Bibles to Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 tells the story of the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. To summarize before this point, if you don't know the story, Exodus is all about the exit, the exit, the exodus of God's people from slavery in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were abused. They were slaves. And God said, I'm going to set you free so that you can obey me and walk with me. I'm going to set you free. We're going to exit out of slavery. And then you're going to go on a long journey walking with me. And you're going to remember this through the Passover and Unleavened Bread Festival. So we see this explained in Exodus chapter 12. Again, if you're in the Black Bibles, it's back on page 53. It's just the book right before Leviticus. You can flip back a few pages. Exodus chapter 12. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel, that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Okay, so it's very practical. It's like you need a lamb according to the size of your household, right? You might have uh, more lambs, less lambs, bigger lambs, smaller lambs, but you're basically taking a lamb sacrifice that your household can eat together. And he's saying, this is going to be the first month of the year for you. So what is God doing? He's resetting their calendar, right? They had whatever kind of Egyptian calendar was being used at that time. But he's saying, I'm forming a new rescued people of God here. I'm saving you, and then you're going to walk with me. And so we're going to reset your calendar. So for them, Passover and unleavened bread marked their new year. This was their first month of the year. He's like, we're going to start a new calendar now, and the spring will be the new year for you, and it's going to be the time that you remember my rescue. Christians do this as well. We worship on the first day of the week. And so we've moved the Sabbath and our practices to Sunday, the first day of the week. It marks the day of resurrection. We mark time just like the Old Testament people of God marked time. Now we'll get into this more as we move along. In the New Covenant, our practices are much simpler. I believe part of God's strategy in simplifying our practices from the Old to the New Covenant is because it's now a multi-ethnic for every tribe in the whole world covenant, right? And so there's this expansion where it can blow up and be translated into multiple different cultures. But we see this similarity. We're going to mark time. And we're going to say, we're going to start your year with my rescue, just like we start our week remembering the rescue of God. So he says, take this lamb, verse 4, And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor can take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb, right? So you can share with your neighbors if you need to. Very practical. Verse 5, your lamb shall be with 
without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They're making a sacrifice. You know, I know, one of the weird things about the Old Testament is all these sacrifices. But when we read Exodus, when we read Leviticus, we understand that God is pointing forward to this story of an ultimate sacrifice that is going to be made. That's clarified in the New Testament book of Hebrews. God is saying, I have an ultimate sacrifice for you. So they're telling the story in the Old Testament with these animal sacrifices. And they're starting off their year with not a sacrifice made by the priests for them. They would go to the temple to do this, but this is a sacrifice that then comes into their home. So it's interesting that they're marking this with a home-based remembrance for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you make this sacrifice, this unblemished, spotless, perfect lamb, should sound like Jesus, should remind you of Jesus. Verse 6, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7, then they'll take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So again, I hope you see the symbolism here. They're covering their homes with the blood of a sacrifice. They're saying, you know what's going to show my faith in God rescuing me? You know how I'm going to be passed over so that my house is not judged? Is I'm going to trust in the blood of the sacrifice. And so if we had screens today, I'd show you a little cartoon picture of that. They basically just smear the blood over their doorpost. And this is symbolic, right? They're saying, I'm trusting in the sacrifice that God has given me goes on in verse 8, They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs, its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, and with your sandals on your feet, and with your staff in your hand. What is he saying? He's like, get on the backpack, put on your hiking shoes. We're going on a journey. We're going on a trip. You get ready. This is how you're going to celebrate this festival. You celebrate it with your hiking shoes on. You you better get ready. You better have your belt on. You better be ready to go. It is the Lord's Passover. You're going to eat this in haste. And so they're remembering, even built into the festival, is this whole idea of, yeah, we're going on a hike. We're going on a journey. we're We're going to be ready to go in a hurry. And so be ready for this. This is the Lord's Passover, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now, we don't have to go into all the details of this, but one of the horrifying pictures of the Old Testament is that God would judge people. And I just want to admit to you that I understand that that's horrifying to us as modern people. That's scary to us. And I want to give you a simple explanation and just invite you to talk to me more afterwards if this is still something gnawing at your heart. But the biblical idea is that we are all under judgment. That we all have fallen short of the glory of God. That we're all separated from God and we're all headed towards judgment. And so this judgment on the firstborn is a representative judgment. In a sense, this is even more gracious than the future judgment that's coming for all men and all women everywhere. And so this was, again, symbolic. God was like, I'm going to judge all the firstborn. But if you trust me, whether you're a Jew or an Egyptian, if you trust in the sacrifice, if you trust me to rescue you, 
you put the blood over the doorpost, I'll pass over. No judgment for you. The lamb is judged in your place. Again, I hope you see how this is an echo, a foreshadowing of all that's to come in Christ. And so the judgment is passed over. Again, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast, a party to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. It's a sign of disrespect for God's salvation. It's a sign of like, yeah, I don't want any part of this salvation. He's saying, no, you have to will and say, I want to be a part of this. And you would symbolize that through your faith in what he has provided here. And so they're removing the leaven from the household. We'll get to that in a later point. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be presented by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day, I brought your hosts, your group, out of the land of Egypt. We'll pause there. This is how the party started. God rescued his people out of slavery and bondage. And we'll see again, this is an echo of what he's going to do in the future through Jesus, rescuing us out of our slavery and bondage to sin. Whenever you read through the whole Old Testament, you'll see this theme that comes up again and again of God being a rescuing God. When we're not sure if we can trust him, we look back on his rescue and we're reminded, okay, he's a rescuing God. He's a gracious God. I can, I can trust him. And so this is one of the beautiful things that you see in the Old Testament is this theme. The Exodus itself comes up again and again and again. It proves God's mighty works, that he's a saving God. He's a redeeming God. He's a rescuing God. And so again, Passover and unleavened bread are interlocking. They go together. I talked to a Jewish scholar this week because I was unsure as I read it. Some people are like, this is one feast. Other people are like, this is two feasts. I was like, I'm, I'm not sure which it is. And maybe it's really important that I figure this out. I don't want to mislead my people to think there's one feast when there's two or two when there's one, right? My Jewish scholar friend was like, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it is, it's no big deal, right? Like just celebrate both of them. They go together, okay? They go together. It's uh, one and a half. It's two, however you want to count it. They go together. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven days of remembrance that started with the sacrifice of the lamb, right? Lamb is sacrificed. We're rescued. Now we're going on this journey. And so we're going to eat hiking food to remember this purity and this journey that God is taking us on into the wilderness. And so there are little ways that we do things like this today in the New Covenant, right? In the New Covenant, we still do worship. We share in communion every week, which is kind of a transformed version of the Passover remembrance and the unleavened bread remembrance. It's a way of celebrating our rescue. A weekly gathering in worship. We said, when you look at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 23, that the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, the weekly rest, the weekly worship is the number one party. And then all the other yearly parties fall after that. We are to gather as God's people. Hebrews 10 says, don't give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing, but, but gather, encourage one another, stir one another on. Uh, we are to encourage one another and, and festival and party every week, remembering what? The same story. The same story that's told in the old covenant is also told in the new covenant. We have different stage building 
We have different ceremonial specifics, but it's the same story. God has rescued us, and he says, now I want you to obey me. Even when you look at the Ten Commandments, it's really beautiful. A lot of us just think of the Ten Commandments as a list of things we're supposed to do, right? Ten things you should do or not do, make sure you obey God. And we miss that they start with, hey, first remember that I'm the God that saved you. God says, I'm the God that saved you. Look it up. Exodus chapter 20. He says, I'm the God that saved you, rescued you through the Exodus. Remember me. Now obey me. We obey God because of his rescue. That's the same pattern that we see in the New Testament. Because of God's gracious rescue, we trust him. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, some days I find it hard to obey God. Some days certain things seem just like too much that he's asking of me. And in those moments, I am to look back on God's rescue. I am to remind myself, you know what? I can trust him because he's the God that rescued me. They did this in the Old Testament just like we do it in the New Testament. We look back on God's rescue and we obey him because of it. Now, I want to clarify, we're not under all the Old Covenant requirements. We're not under all the stage building and all the ceremonies of the Old Covenant but what is the same? This, what's the same is the story of rescue and the moral commands that God lays on our life. That's what's the same. But there's still great benefit in looking back at the story and remembering God's great and mighty works of the past. So I would encourage you during the season to try some form of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As we said, there's typically this tradition in the Christian world of fasting during the week and then having some kind of party or celebration, break your fast on Sundays, Right? So maybe next Saturday night, next Sunday afternoon, you could have your own little feast of hiking food, right? You could say, you know what? We're going to buy trail mix. Uh, we're going to get some, uh, some nuts, some RX bars, some oranges, whatever it might be that you would take on a big journey, whatever it might be, your workout food, you know, and just say, hey, we're going to have this special meal remembering that God rescued his people and then called them to a race, called them to a hike, called them to a journey. We're going to remember that God saved us, but then in simplicity and purity, we are to obey him. We are to follow him. You could also do a more Jewish version of that. You can buy matzah bread at most of our local grocery stores. You could go full Jewish Old Covenant and have you know matzah bread, have a complete feast of unleavened bread or tortillas. That's the most common unleavened bread we have in our culture, right? tortillas, but, but do something. I would encourage you again, you don't have to do this to be more holy before God or to be more special. I would say just do this as a way to just kind of enter into the Old Testament world and remember our God of rescue. This is a great opportunity to remember his goodness. As I talked to my Jewish scholar friend, one of the things that he was pointing out is that all of the sacrifices that happened at the temple were unleavened bread sacrifices. And so he says, this particular practice of unleavened bread is, in a sense, bringing the temple sacrifices into the home. And we see a similar pattern uh, in the New Testament. We are to take what God is doing in the world and bring that into our own heart, into our own life. And so the question I would have for you is, are you doing that in any way? You know, I've got this idea of like, have a party, do a feast of unleavened bread. But, but is your faith coming into your home? Are, are you reading this story to your kids, to your spouse, to your roommates? Is your home a place where the heavenly contact of of God revealing himself at the temple, that's actually making its way 
into your private residence. One of my favorite visions of this in the New Testament is from Revelation chapter 3. It's towards the end of our Bible. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read a couple of verses to you. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says this, Those whom I love, I'm going to reprove and discipline. Was that saying? Jesus is like, I'm going to challenge you if I love you. I'm going to call you to hard things. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. What's he saying? It's like, I'm standing at the door of your heart. I'm knocking. Will you, will you bring me in to the home? Will you bring Jesus into your home? Will you invite him in personally and say, I want you here with me? Revelation 3 is taking what is in the Old Testament, these practices of just in generalities, right? Having a home that honors God, and it's making it really personal. It's saying, but, but what about you, your life personally? What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to invite him in, or are you going to be like the criticism he makes here of the people there in the church where they were like, we're fine, we're rich, we're happy, we don't need Jesus. He says, no, you need to recognize your need of me and invite me in to your life. So how did the party start? It started with the Exodus. God rescued his people. And they said, I want you to remember this. I'm a rescuing God. And I took you on a journey to follow me. Point two is how the party expanded. How the party expanded. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5. So flip over in your Bible to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5. It's page 954. It's about 900 pages later in the Black Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I just want to read this one verse to show how the party expands in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Lump sounds strange. He means lump of dough, okay? So he's like, get rid of the old leaven so that you can be a new lump, a clean lump, right? As you really are unleavened. Beautiful New Testament motivation here. Just like in the Old Testament, God says, I've freed you, so obey me and live like you're free. In the New Testament, he says, I've I've taken away your impurity by the cross of Christ, so now live in purity. Live like you're pure. I've made you pure through the cross, so now live like it. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. I've rescued you. Now obey my commandments and live like a rescued person. Live free. Galatians uses this freedom and bondage analogy over and over again. So 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So as we were talking about the kind of similarity of the story between the Old Testament and New Testament, you might be thinking, yeah, that's great poetry, Dave. It's nice literary connections. But here the Apostle Paul says, no, it's, it's a direct connection. This is not just a pretty story idea. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. He's the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament saints hoped for and longed for. Paul says, Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So cleanse out the old stuff because Christ has already cleansed you. Right? Translation, because you're forgiven of your sins, don't go back to your sins. Live in a new way. Obey him, follow him, believe what he says about you. 
Jesus has been sacrificed for you. The, the doorpost of your individual life is covered by the blood of the Lamb if you trust in Jesus. If you trust in Him, He sees you as righteous. He sees you as, as whole, as cleansed, as transformed. I was talking to our women's ministry director this week, and she's like, oh, you gotta, you got to tie in 2 Corinthians with this as well. The next book of the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, This, for our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the substitution of Christ being our Passover lamb. He took the one that knew no sin, the spotless lamb, Jesus, the only perfect human that ever lived, and He made Him sin. He hung Him on the cross and poured all of our sins out on Him. The fancy theological word for this is double imputation. So our sins were imputed to Christ, were placed on Christ before the eyes of God. And what's the other side of that imputation? Double imputation? The very righteousness of God is imputed to to me and to you if you trust in Jesus. What does that mean? That means if you're trusting in Jesus, Jesus is covering you. God sees you as delightful, as beautiful, as whole, and as righteous in Christ. He's pleased with you. You're free. So what does that mean? Oh, so can I go back to the garbage? No, live free. Obey him. Walk in newness of life. Get rid of the old leaven because he's already made you an unleavened new lump of dough, right? So now live in purity. Follow him. Obey him. Christ is your Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed for you. Trust in that sacrifice. Now, I like to say how the party expanded, right? Because we see this focus in the Old Testament of the reason we can trust God is because of the Exodus. The mighty works of God, God's a saving God. It comes up in the Psalms. It comes up in the prophets. This is, this is like the stake in the ground that we can trust God as a saving God, the Exodus. And we have the exact same thing in the New Testament. It's expanded now in Jesus, the cross and resurrection. So on your days when you find it really hard to obey Jesus, don't look at yourself and say, ah, but if I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, then God will be really impressed with me. No. You look at Christ, your Passover lamb. Just like in the Old Testament, they didn't go back to, hey, we rescued ourselves. We're so awesome. Deuteronomy 7.7, God says very clearly, I I picked you Jews because you were a puny little tribe and everybody would know it was me that rescued you. They would know you couldn't have rescued yourself. And we live that same reality in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 makes it real clear. We can't boast. We can't say, look at how I rescued myself. No, it's the grace of Christ. It's trusting in Christ and what he has done. That's where the rescue comes from. And then he says, so now live in the new works that he's given you to do. You're not rescued by your own works. You're rescued by Jesus. So now you can go do good works. And so as you're stumbling forward and you're following Jesus and you hit those pitfalls, you fall back into that same old sin. Again, you can say, you know what? This sin doesn't define me. Jesus died for me. This sin has been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so you can thank him again for his forgiveness. And you can recognize that he sees you as as righteous, as whole, as unleavened in Christ. And you can get up and brush yourself off and you can continue 
to follow him because you're looking back to his faithfulness. You're not looking at your track record. You're not counting all the times you fail. You're like, oh, I tripped three times. Well, God hates me. You're looking at Jesus. No, God loves me because of Jesus. Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Another explicit connection that's really helpful to see in the New Testament, and I'm just going to give you this uh, reference. You can go look it up later. But there's this famous story in Luke chapter 9. Uh, Different versions of it appear in other Gospels as well. But in Luke chapter 9, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus is glowing, and he's kind of fulfilling this holy vision of, of a holy, righteous, transformed, transfigured person. And he's talking on this mountaintop to Moses and Elijah. So it's like one of the craziest, trippiest experiences that the disciples had, right? They're freaked out. But what's really interesting is it says Moses and Elijah were specifically talking to Jesus, and it says in the English, about the departure that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You know what that Greek word is for the departure that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem? Exodus. Moses and Elijah were talking on the Mount of Transfiguration where it was clearer than any other place in the New Testament that Jesus is the holy, perfect Son of God. And they're like, ah, this is pretty cool. You're about to accomplish the new exodus in Jerusalem through your death and resurrection. We should see the expansion that that Jesus is blowing up all these categories for us. It's bigger, it's better, it, it reaches farther. So application, number one, trust in the work of Jesus, your real Passover lamb to rescue you and restore you. And then number two, follow Jesus in obedience. Old-fashioned community life, walking with the saints, following Jesus together. Trust in Jesus. He's the core. He's the ground. He's the source of your acceptance, of your rescue, of your transformation. But then walk in obedience with him. Don't, Don't give up. So if you need a couple of other cross references for How these things change from Old to New Testament. A couple of cross-references. I've mentioned Hebrews a lot. Colossians 2 is really helpful. In Colossians 2, it grounds everything in the cross of Christ. And then it says, don't don't let the Jews judge you because you're not keeping all the ceremonies, but ground everything in the cross of Christ. And it uses this particular word for religion, threskeia. It's this peculiar religion word that doesn't appear very often in the New Testament. So you've probably heard people say that following Jesus is more of a relationship than a religion. Have you ever heard that before? There's a lot of truth to that. It can kind of become a cliche, but there's a lot of truth to that, right? The word religion is not used a lot in the New Testament. It has this formal sense, and there's a sense in which that's one of the differences between the Old Testament faith and the New Testament faith. It's less formal now. It is more relational, less of a religion. And so this word religion comes in and Colossians chapter 2, it's like, no, trust in Jesus, don't trust in religion. And then in James, the word religion comes up as well. And so you're like, Dave, I get this, but I really want more ceremonies, right? I I like the old covenant rituals, and I I want more ceremonies so that I can impress God, impress myself, and, you know, finally be done with sin. There's a great temptation. If, If you're like me and you struggle in certain areas of life, you're like, man, if I just had like this silver bullet, then I could solve the issue. And the New Testament again and again says, no, go back to Jesus. Jesus is the goal. And then that's going to work its way out in, in a simple life of moral obedience, right? So difference between Old and New Covenant, same story. Different ceremonies, different rituals, but same story. God rescues you, now morally obey him. Same goal. 
So James says it this way, James 1.26, if anybody thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So he starts with a negative. Like if you think you're religious, but you have a tongue problem, a mouth problem, it's not a very good religion. Then he goes on, verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, in Christianity, we usually divide in one side or the other, care for the hurting or be morally pure. James says, sorry, you got to do both. you got to do both. If you're really craving more religion, if you're attracted to more liturgy, to more ritual, to more ceremonies, James says, if you really want good religion, this is what you do. Care for hurting people and be morally pure. That, that's the goal. It's, it's pretty simple. It's really pretty simple. This is how the party has expanded, and this is how it can be translated into every culture in the world. This is, this is how it goes from this tribal thing for the Jews to something for every tribe all over the world. It's the most translatable religion that's ever existed. So finally, how the party continues. We see this as we just read a little more in 1 Corinthians 5, how the party continues. I had this great picture. I'm so sad the slides aren't up. This really cute picture of a little three-year-old girl with stripy socks, and she was sweeping, okay? And I use this picture because in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, one of the traditions in a lot of Jewish families is they'll send the children around the house with like a little feather broom and a little paper sack, and they'll go sweep up leaven, and then they'll burn it all as a ceremony. Like, okay, we've, we found all the dirt and the sin and the grossness in our house, and we've cleansed our house, and then they go burn it, Right? And so what does that look like in our life? This continual sweeping away of sin. Well, Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. So just kind of expanding what we read already. Back to verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Boasting in the New Testament is often described as being puffed up, right? Like leaven puffs up bread. He's like, you got this like fake puffiness in your life. You think you're awesome. You're not that awesome. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So again, he's being very explicit Is it okay for us to do old covenant rituals? Yeah, it's fun. It's great. It's a good way to learn. But what does he really want us to do? Like if you don't have time to do the rituals, what's the most important thing? He's saying sweep out the leaven of malice and evil. That's the main thing. Your ceremonies, your rituals, your curriculum is secondary to this life of obedience to Jesus. I'll read read verse 8 one more time. Let us therefore celebrate the festival Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so we see this emphasis again and again on the New Testament of actually walk with Jesus, actually do what Jesus says. And this is where we are so out of step with the modern world. If you haven't been around our church very long, uh, just to let you know, we try to be as modern as we can, right? Right? Like, we try to be as, as cool and as with it as old, weird, nerdy people can be, but we'll, we'll never be cool and in step with the world in this area. 
Jesus calls us to obey him, to do what he says. And so when the world says it's really cool to say there are no moral boundaries and you're a bigot if you think otherwise, we say, well, I have to follow Jesus. I have to do what Jesus says. I have to obey him. And so again, we get confused, like what's the same and what's different? The ceremonies are different, but the moral demands that God places on our life are the same. In this section, it's one of the most offensive sections of the New Testament. It's one of the most bigoted, quote-unquote, sections of the New Testament. It's where Paul has, has the gall to say that the church should not embrace sexual immorality. He says it's not okay to say that sexual immorality is a good idea. Now, to be clear, when you read further, he clarifies, we don't judge pagans. Pagans are going to pagan, Right? Like it's not our job. You're not out there falling around your, your pagan neighbor saying, hey, stop being immoral. No, he's saying the church can't say this is fine and it doesn't matter and God doesn't care. The church has to keep with the same story that was in the old covenant that's the same story in the new covenant, which is I've set you free and rescued you from sin and death. Now I want you to walk in new life. Obey me. And again, we'll trip. We'll sin. I know this. You may not know I know this, but you're all sinners, Okay. <laughs> So I know that. So 1 Corinthians 5 is not saying the church will be absolutely sin-free. No, it's just saying we can't say it doesn't matter. Let's be all about sin here. Let's pride ourselves on how open and how accepting we are. No. It says specifically, don't let each other say, I'm a believer, but I'm going to walk away from Jesus' demands on my life. That's, that's the line, right? So if you're a pagan, you do whatever you want. But if you're going to follow Jesus, then follow Jesus. That, that's what he's saying. It's not perfection. It's, it's daily progress, right? I fail. I sin. Jesus, I'm sorry. Thank you that you've forgiven me. I, I brush myself off. I keep following Jesus. What he's forbidding is that we would say, it just doesn't even matter. Do whatever you want. So like, no, we've got we to keep following Jesus. We have a goal. We have a hike that he's invited us on. So we're going to throw off the sin we're going to get rid of it. We'll, we'll never be perfect the side of heaven. There's going to be a daily journey of pursuing him in love. Again, trusting that he's worth it. Again, we're, it's grounded in the sacrifice of Christ. All of us have sins that are particularly hard to avoid. Right? Like, I just think every person, you've got your seven commandments, you're like, got it, no problem. And then there's like the three or four that you're like, I don't know about this, Jesus. This is kind of strict, right? These are kind of hard. And again, you don't ground your obedience in yourself. You ground it in Jesus. He's worth it. He rescued me. Okay, I'll follow him. Because some sins, like you can't make sense of. And that's part of what's going around in our culture today is like, well, I prayed about it and I just decided, I think Jesus is wrong on this one, <laughs> right? Like that's just happening left and right. No, we say, I'm going to trust him. I don't get it, right? Like, I wish that he would say, you know, sin X and Y and A and B, that they're okay, because those are my favorite sins. <laughs> but he hasn't said that. And I always get it, but I trust that he knows best. So I'm going to obey him. And that's what it means to be under his authority, is we're really trusting in his rescue and his grace. Hebrews 12 is another cross-reference that clarifies this. It uses the race language. It's a really helpful one, but we're running out of time, so I'm not going to read that to you. But that's another cross-reference you can go to. It says, look to Jesus. 
He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. So again, we'll, we'll end with this. As you're on this hike, as you're on this journey, should we enjoy festivals and rituals and practices? Yeah, enjoy these things. But what does he really want you to do? He, he wants us to, to sweep out the leaven of sin and to fix our eyes on, on him. Say, he's rescued me, and I'm going to follow him. That's what Hebrews 12.1 says explicitly. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Throw off the sin. Throw off the weights that entangle us and run after him because he is worth it. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. You, you invite us into a relationship with you, and you actually give us the power to follow you by your rescue, by dying on the cross for our sins, by imputing your righteousness to us. The story is, is too good to not be true. And so, God, we pray that we would be shaped by it, transformed by it, that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.